Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah uh, 55. I'm reading from the NIV version. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from the heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Knock, knock. I heard you were having a barbecue, and so I came over. Why are knock-knock jokes so lame? That's what I want to know. But anyway, I'm going to give you a few more. Knock-knock. Lettuce. Let us in. We're cold. Come on, Deborah. Knock-knock. Doesn't. Doesn't anybody hear me knocking out here? How about this one? Knock-knock. Jesus. Jesus who knew. Knock, knock. Jesus. Jesus who knows your deeds. Knock, knock. Jesus. Jesus who loves you more than you can imagine. Jesus who knocks and calls for us to answer. Knock, knock. Knock, knock. Who's there? Behold, look, here I am, I, Jesus, stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, I know this is not the catchiest of knock-knock jokes. I, I get that. But it's puzzling and it's surprising just to say. Do you see the picture here? In your mind, can you see it? Jesus, the ruler over all of God's creation. We're going to hear about that today in the, in the Revelation text. The faithful, the true witness, the foundational amen to all of life is standing on the outside of a door knocking to get in. And what's the door that Jesus is knocking at? The door of the church. What? 
I mean, let's think about this for a minute. Why would Jesus be on the outside of a church's door knocking to get in in the first place? I mean, how did Jesus even get there? Remember back in the opening vision of Revelation, didn't we see Jesus standing right in the middle of the churches? Didn't we talk about how Jesus is present right in the middle of our mess? What an encouragement that was. And yet here he is, standing outside of a closed door, knocking on the door of a church that's inside, doing whatever churches do, oblivious to the fact that their master, their Lord, their Savior, their friend, isn't even there. How did that happen? How did a church manage to exclude Jesus from their community? How do we put Jesus out of our lives? Well, that's what we're going to find out today. We're into our Revelation series. We've been cruising along. This is like week nine. And we've been looking at and hearing all of this amazing stuff that Jesus has had to say to the church. We're going to be traveling through the whole book of Revelation. It's going to take us up into sometime next spring. But it's been a lot of fun so far. We've seen some amazing sights, even though we have a long way to go. Remember the setting. John the pastor has been sent to a Roman penal colony, a rock quarry called the island of Patmos. Because he was faithful to Jesus, he refused to worship the emperor, and frankly, he led and taught the church to also refuse to worship the emperor as God. It is on that rock that you could say, Others thought it God-forsaken piece of property. Jesus shows up and reveals himself in a powerful way, commissioning John to write a letter, a big long letter, to seven specific churches in the Roman province of Asia, what's modern Turkey today. Churches that John knew very well. Some of them he had pastored in, traveled in. They knew him. He knew them. Jesus reveals himself to John as standing in the middle of the churches, what we've already talked about. And from that central place, Jesus uh, dictates seven personal messages to each of the seven churches. He introduces the whole rest of Revelation, and he speaks directly into each of their situations. Remember how we talked about the curtain is down right now, but remember what we talked about the meaning of Revelation is? The meaning of Revelation is apocalypse, right? We all know by now, is apocalypse a bad thing? Is apocalypse something you should shudder about? Is apocalypse something you should start prepping for? Apocalypse is simply the drawing back of a curtain to reveal something that was already present but had been hidden from our eyes. And so, revelation is the drawing back of a curtain by Jesus, about Jesus, so that we can see Jesus present in the middle of our sometimes awful situation, but also so that we can see who we truly are as Jesus reveals himself and ourselves to ourselves. Well, today we come to the final of these seven personal messages from Jesus. It's the most famous one. It's the one we probably heard the most about. So we're going to get into it, and we're going to find out how in the world Jesus was left standing on the outside of the church. I think there is an insert in your bulletins with this scripture text on it. You may also have brought a Bible or a smartphone. And then also I think there's a few Bibles in the front of your pews as well. So please follow along because not all of it will be on the screen. Little bits of it will be. 
To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write. This is Jesus speaking. These are the words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness. The ruler of God's creation. If anyone was wondering what the answer, the real answer in this text was to the Jesus who, there it is. Jesus goes on and says, I know your deeds. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now some of you have a terrible gag reflex, don't you? Hands up. I see hands. Some of you have guts of steel. Anyone want to confess to that one? Yes. Well, have you ever wondered what makes Jesus want to puke? Not many of us have, I know, but this is the question. Here it is. What makes Jesus want to puke? When people he passionately loves, people he gave everything for, people he literally changed history to redeem, get a little bored with him. What makes Jesus want to throw up in his mouth? A church that finds him mildly interesting. A group of Christians who thinks Jesus is sort of okay. I know your deeds, Jesus says. Something we've heard him say again and again in these messages. And what he knows about this church makes him want to vomit. They've become tepid and tasteless. Terrible, lukewarm. Now, if you've heard this passage before, you've maybe assumed that hot is good, somehow representing, um, hot representing uh, the person is passionately hot and, and fired up about Jesus, and cold is, is sort of bad in the sense that it represents people who are far away from God and just have nothing, nothing going on. But really, it'd be better to be that than, than, than this middle thing where you're lukewarm and tasteless and, and tepid. That's what we often have heard, but I think there's actually a better explanation. In reality, both are good. Hot, healing water is prized. And so is cold, refreshing water. It's so invigorating. Both realities provide something valuable. But lukewarm? There's nothing good about that. And Jesus uses this image of hot, uh, cold, lukewarm, because he knows the people of Laodicea. He knows the people of this city. You see, Laodicea was one of three sister cities. Across the Lycus River, about six miles away, was the city of Hierapolis. Hierapolis was famous for its healing hot springs. It was kind of like Ainsworth, where people would travel from all over just to have a good soak in the mineral tubs and enjoy the healing and the restoration of this hot water. But that beautiful hot water flowed out of Hierapolis down toward Laodicea. And then, by the time it got to Laodicea and it plunged over a 300-foot cliff, it had gone a bit lukewarm. And we all know what lukewarm, heavily mineralized water would taste like, don't we? It was gross. It was disgusting. It wasn't good to drink, and it certainly wasn't good to soak in. Like the guy who fell asleep in the bathtub, right? And woke up later. The, the water's gross at that point. The other city is the city of Colossae. It's, a, it's the city that Paul wrote one of his letters to, the book of Colossians, the letter to the Colossians. Colossians are the city of Colossae had cold, refreshing water. So you can kind of think of Kootenai Lake. And it was good to drink. But what about Laodicea? They actually had no natural water source. They had to pipe it in from elsewhere. And they were renowned for having, well, water. 
And certainly, as they were not very tempted to drink the, the really gross water that was coming down from Hierapolis. What's Jesus saying here? He's not really saying that hot is good and cold is bad. Both are good, and here's the point. Jesus is saying to this church, I've been pushed to the side. I'm no longer at the center of your life. I'm no longer at the center of your community. I'm no longer at the center of your families. I'm no longer at the center of your worship. And because of that, you've become useless. You are no longer able to heal or refresh anyone. I wish you were one or the other, Jesus says. Why? Because both are good. One brings healing, like a hot mineral spring. The other provides refreshment, like a, like a cold drink of pure spring water. But you, Jesus says, you've gone tepid and awful and tasteless. When Jesus is excluded from a Christian's life, when he's excluded from your life, you're no longer able to heal anyone in the name of Jesus. You're no longer able to restore people with your words. You're no longer able to be who God has called you and I to be to the people in our community around us. When a, when, when a church puts Jesus on the outside, people no longer find refreshment. They no longer find healing. Something has changed. Something has moved on. The only hope for the world, the only hope for the world, is a church that has Jesus at the very center of it, bringing healing and refreshment to others who are in their community. Well, how did this happen? How did this church, if I could say it, become so gross? They thought they had everything they needed when the one thing they needed had disappeared. Jesus Christ himself. Listen to Jesus' words. In verse 17, he says, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Here's the deal. These Laodiceans were filthy rich. They had really acquired a lot of wealth. They, they truly didn't need a thing. They were self-sufficient people. Lots of money, ample food, a closet full of togas, and an amazing benefits plan. Because you see, Laodicea was renowned for three things. Things that created enough self-sufficiency that it was easy to forget God. These are the three things. First, it was famous for its many banks. Because it was so wealthy, they had a lot of banks. They were all solvent. Years before, when other cities, remember Sardis and Philadelphia, had been leveled in an earthquake. And in those times, um, the emperor was, was uh, helping them rebuild those cities by giving them a five-year tax remittance. Laodicea turned it down. They were so wealthy, they said to the emperor, we don't need your, we don't need your cash. We're okay. We got what it takes. They rebuilt the city themselves. Fabulously wealthy. They were also known for their clothing industry. Industry, In particular, they, they produced a special cloth from a unique breed of sheep that created this beautiful, glossy, uh, black wool. And they exported their clothes all over. But as a result, they were also known as sort of the fashionistas of the Roman world. There was no one better dressed than a Laodicean. And third... They were renowned for their medical school, particularly their work with eyes. Their eye specialists and their eye medicines, including the development of an eye salve, which was known all over, and people would travel from all over to receive this salve on their eyes, which they claimed would help and heal weak and uh, maybe diseased eyes. The wealth, clothes, medicine, particularly for the eyes. 
But they, so they had reason in some sense to say, I'm rich. I have everything. I've got everything I need. I mean, what more could a person really want? And what was true of the city in general had become true of the church in particular. And yet, Jesus calls them out. He pulls back the curtain on these Christians and we see that reality is not so rosy. Their wealth and their self-sufficiency has in fact deluded them profoundly. What they thought of themselves, the stories they told themselves, what they saw in the mirror every day, hid the truth about who they really were. What does Jesus see? Jesus sees Christians who might be rich in this life, but are beggars in true life. Christians who might be fashionably dressed, but are actually shamefully exposed. A church that might claim to see and yet are pitifully blind. He sees a wretched lot. A church that does not, in fact, whatever it's thinking about itself, have what it needs. And I think this must have come as a shock to them. I mean, can you imagine the murmurs when this letter was read? (laughs) The anger, the shame, even the pushback. Oh, come on! As this this missive from John is read to this wealthy, well-dressed church. I can hear the denial, can't you? I can hear the rejection. I can see the burning cheeks that are kind of flushed with a mix of anger and, and denial from Jesus' strong rebuke. I mean, how will they respond as this is read to them? Are they going to get up and leave? Are they going to make excuses or exceptions of why Jesus must not, I mean, he must not be meaning that for me. I mean, I can see why he'd mean it for that guy across the room. And I know a buddy who really should have been here today so he can hear this message. But I know it doesn't really apply to me because my circumstance is different. Can you hear it? Or maybe they just wanted to shoot the messenger. I'm not sure. That can happen too. But how should they respond? Well, if they're willing to accept Jesus' words, if they're willing to let him pull back the curtain, if they're willing to acknowledge their need and in fact acknowledge their delusion, Jesus has counsel for them. Here is next words in verse 18. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Do you see how Jesus speaks a a tailor-made message for this church? All that they need, they can obtain from Him. The purest of gold, the white clothing of the faithful, which is a dominant theme through Revelation. I salve for true healing. These are all things that they had, right? These are all things that they thought they were good on. Well, they might be physically healthy and well-dressed and wealthy, but it's only in Jesus that they will find the remedy to the tragedy of their true condition. Jesus is all they need to address their truest need. Well, how do you take this? I mean, is this offensive to you? Because I don't find it very offensive. I don't feel a lot of pushback in this. Do you? I mean, these words were written to a church a long time ago, like 1,900 years ago. And it was far away. It was kind of a different situation, right? Wasn't it? I mean, how much does Jesus really think that this message would apply to us here in Canada with our economy? 
with our healthcare system. I mean, wouldn't it fit better in the setting of a, of a church that was a little more wealthy? With people who have lots to eat and to wear and who can go to the doctor anytime? Who feel pretty self-sufficient? Wouldn't it be better to a, a church like that, don't you think? I have nods. I think it would be better for a church like that. I think, just stop right here. <laughs> well, maybe I am starting to feel a little bit awkward about this message of Jesus after all. Because the reality check is we are rich, right? We've talked about this before. We may not feel overly rich. And I know some of us are drowning in debt. and need to deal with that. I acknowledge that. But most of us have everything we need. We don't go hungry. We manage to pay our bills. Some of us have even acquired a level of financial comfort that's enviable to others. And what does wealth do? How does having everything we need reduce our conscious dependence upon Jesus. The facts are clear, and I believe, unarguable. The more we feel financially secure, the less we depend on Jesus. I mean, it can seem weird to pray, give us this day our daily bread, when what we mostly need is a diet. One of the most difficult places to be a Christian is right in the middle of a thriving economy. This has been true through history. This is true in the world today. And the Bible is very clear. If we aren't paying attention, wealth will distract us, will delude us, and will eventually derail our faith. There's a reason why Jesus said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because make no mistake about it, when you have everything you need, Forgetting you need God gets easier than ever. This is one of the reasons why Jesus calls us to give. To be givers. To be generous with all that he has given us. To give sacrificially to his kingdom purposes. Giving generously is actually an antidote to the poisonous effects that wealth can have on our faith. Jesus wants us to give as much for how it grows our character and grows our hearts and grows our priorities as he does want us to give for how it helps others find and follow him. He calls us to give for you because he loves you. He wants to see you grow as well as to see others come to know him. Giving reminds us of who matters most. That's why I'm not shy to tell you to give. That's why I'm not shy to talk about it because it's crucial to our discipleship. But self-sufficiency extends beyond wealth, doesn't it? Feeling that we have everything we need reaches into all of our relationships. You know, we think we have all the knowledge we, we need to be happy, and so we exclude Jesus from our sexuality. Or we think we have everything we need to raise our kids, and so we don't depend on Jesus' power and his presence to really disciple our kids. We think we have everything we need to grow our church so we don't wait on the Lord for His leading. We think we have everything we need to determine our priorities. We know what's important. We know what we can give. We know what we should be involved in. And so we don't allow Jesus to influence the way that we spend our time. See what's happening? When we think we have everything we need, we exclude Jesus from our lives or at least certain areas of our lives. We think we'll just pull Jesus in when we need Him. But until then, he can wait outside. 
Maybe things got tough and you started shutting them out of your marriage. Maybe you were so lonely that you refused Jesus' entrance into your bedroom. Perhaps you barred Jesus from coming in when you were on the computer at night or with your smartphone under the covers. Maybe you remembered to pack your lunch for work, but you refused to let Jesus ride along. Jesus, we got this. We're, we're okay. We don't really need you to help today. You know, We don't need you to help with our food addictions or our substance dependence. Jesus, we don't really need you to help us figure out whether or not we should buy that car, take that vacation, sell that house, start that project, hire that staff, marry that person, break up with that person. Thanks, Jesus, but we won't be needing you today. Not here anyway. we got everything we need. Could you just please wait outside for when we need you? Because your presence here is making things really awkward. Do you hear that? We render Jesus, the ruler of God's whole creation, irrelevant to our lives. Jesus, the faithful, the true witness who loves us and died for us, who rose again, who comes to us again and again, is told to wait outside until we need him. Jesus, who sees all, who knows you intimately, who knows exactly what you need in your situation, who knows exactly what you need in your marriage, who knows exactly what you need in your workplace. He knows all of it. And he knows how he created you. And he has created you to be in this beautiful relationship with God. He gets shunted outdoors like a troublesome brat. Because he makes us uncomfortable. And I think it makes Jesus want to puke. Well, I don't know about you, but that makes me feel squeamish right now. You think I stand up here and say this? Because I, 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 mean, I am hearing this too, guys. I am hearing this too. I am very challenged by this. Are you starting to feel a little angry about this? Feeling like Jesus' words are a little too harsh? Where's the grace? <laughs> I mean, are you wanting to shoot the messenger right now? If so, if there's anything in you where you're starting to feel like, come on, that's too, you shouldn't be saying that. Maybe, just maybe, we're getting a little closer to, I think, what these people in Laodicea would have felt when they first heard this letter. I mean, Jesus, why would you talk that way to us? How could you be so difficult? So nitpicky. How can you be so harsh? Jesus, why would you show up here and say that kind of thing? Make us feel bad. There's only one answer to that question. One answer. Because Jesus loves us more than we love us. I know the grammar's not right, but it sounded better. Jesus (laughs) loves us more than we love us. We don't believe that. We think we love us more than Jesus loves us. And so when Jesus shows up and says some stuff like that, we think, oh, come on, where's the love? And we've got to remember that when Jesus shows up and says this kind of stuff to us, it's because he loves us. The only reason Jesus is willing to push so hard, the only reason he speaks so boldly, the only reason he's out there banging on the door is that he knows us intimately and that he created us for this highest purpose to be in this beautiful, expansive relationship with His Father in a way that literally transforms our lives and transforms our family and transforms the world in which which we live. That this Jesus who sees the mess we're in and how our delusion, if left unchallenged, will lead us to death, this Jesus loves us way too much to let us die in that delusion. And so He comes knocking. He comes pounding on the door, calling us to answer Him because He loves us. Listen to what He says next. 
Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Do you hear that? Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me is this beautiful covenant relationship. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Do you see it? Open the door to Jesus and He comes and eats with you and then guess what? He takes you home to sit with Him on the throne of His Father. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my Father on His throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All this harshness, this stark reality check, this ripping back of the curtain, all of this is a passionate expression of Jesus' unchangeable love for us. When Jesus tells you to let him back into your sex life, it's because he loves you more than you can imagine. And he knows what's destroying you. When Jesus calls you on a harmful habit, it's because he's got a dream for you that's bigger than the dream you have for yourself. When Jesus challenges you to give so you can break your trust in money and start trusting in him finally, maybe for the first time in your life, it's because he loves you more than you could know. When Jesus rebukes us for our self-sufficiency, it's because Jesus knows that in fact you are not sufficient. Whatever you may think, you cannot make life work without him. You need him more than you could know. And if he didn't rebuke you, if he didn't push back against me, if he, if he didn't step in and speak to us about our character, about the areas of our lives that are derailing us, about our delusion, if Jesus just ignored our sin, ignored our addiction, patted us in the head and said, it's okay. If he didn't challenge us on our consistent disregarding, disregarding of his guidance in our lives, then guess what it would mean? It would mean he didn't love you. It would mean he could care less. It mean he didn't really, you know, he's not that invested in you after all. Aren't you thankful that's not true? Can you see the connection? His rebuke, his discipline, these strong words are an expression of his love for us. His discipline in our lives proves his commitment to us experiencing true life. You know what this means? It means that when Jesus shows up, when he tells you something about your life, when he exposes something about your relationships, when he reveals a delusion in your heart, when you finally see how prideful and self-righteous you've really become, the first thing we should say at that moment when we realize, the first thing out of our mouth should be, thank you, Jesus, for loving me so much that you would reveal this to me. Thank you, Jesus, so much for speaking in a way that I could finally hear it. Thank you so much, Jesus, for not just looking at me and saying, he's not worth it, she's not worth it. Thank you so much for stepping into my life. And remember, some of the ways he steps into our lives is through other people. And it's very easy to shoot that messenger, isn't it? In some way or another. Maybe he's stepping into your life this morning as you've heard his word spoken. Maybe he's been knocking at the door of your life for a while, trying to get you to open up a certain door of your house, the office, the bedroom, the kitchen. I don't know what it is, down in the basement, out in the garage. 
He's been knocking for a while and just this morning you realize, oh my goodness, I've been resisting this because I've been afraid of what he might do. I've been, I've been resisting that. I've been propping up that delusion of self-sufficiency because I thought if I admitted that, it would all be over. I didn't realize it was you, Jesus. I didn't realize it was your love calling me to a new place of freedom in life. We thank Jesus for his love when we realize, oh, he loves us so much. He loves us so much that he'd be willing to actually step in to the mess, to the awful places, and speak life into us. What does this mean for us practically? Well, I think, first of all, as a church, I want to talk about that. Last week, we had another door on stage, didn't we? Isn't that weird? These two stories have doors in them. One's wide open that Jesus places in front of the church of Philadelphia. The other one's closed shut with Jesus on the outside. I didn't develop that in the sermon, but I thought that was pretty cool. Maybe you can toss that one around in Connect Group this week. But anyway, last week we talked about how Jesus has placed an open door in front of us as a church. And though we as a church can feel weak and insignificant, read, not sufficient for what he's asking us to do. We heard the call of Jesus to say, look, I know you're weak. I know you're confused. I know you ain't got what it takes. But that has not stopped me from putting a big, huge, wide open door of opportunity and witness in front of you as the Erickson Covenant Church, and I want you to walk through that door. We were super challenged by that personally and as a church. Monday night at the congregational meeting, 76 of us walked through that door overtop the fears and the obstacles that we think might stop us from walking through the door of opportunity that Jesus is placing in front of us as a church, we're saying to Jesus, we want to move forward with what you have for us. Okay? But here's the deal. As we do that, as we follow Jesus, as, as more people are helped to find and follow him, as our lives grow, as we start to address issues in our lives, and things start to get healed. We get freedom from a habit that's been really derailing us. We get restoration and reconciliation in some relationships that have been trouble for a long time. We finally start to see our marriages start to heal. Things start to happen in our community and maybe our church continues to grow. I don't know. But as we experience those things, guess what can happen? We can begin to feel like we have more and more of what it takes. In other words, we can grow even by surprise, we can grow in our feeling of self-sufficiency. Isn't that amazing? That as Jesus does a work in our lives, we can get down the road and we're experiencing God's blessing and we're, we're, we're applying His word to our lives and we're, we're starting to see things come into to shape and, and they, they can come a day where we can begin to think, you know what, I, I kind of got this. We kind of got this as a church, don't we? We're doing pretty good, aren't we? I would take a look around, you know, hey. And it's at that moment we're at our greatest danger. Where we can slip into a place where we feel like we have got everything we need. <laughs> and find that we have slipped from a Jesus sufficiency to a self-sufficiency. And so I want us to hear a warning as a church from this church in Laodicea who had everything they needed and yet were so deluded that the very thing they needed was missing. I think it's a challenge to us as a church as we move forward in what I believe last week was the primary message out of the seven that most directly applied to us as a church. And if you didn't hear it, I encourage you to go online or iTunes and listen to it. Or, if that's a challenge technologically, talk to Jack and he'll burn a CD for you. 
And if that's a challenge technologically, well, I'll sit down for coffee and preach it to you. But you're buying. <clears throat> How does it apply to us personally? Well, here's the question. I think you have to ask it. Even as we spoke today, as you heard, as the Spirit is present here speaking, is there an area of your life from which you have excluded Jesus? Is there an area? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's your political views. Maybe it's the way you treat your kids or your spouse. Maybe it's the way you eat or drink. I don't know what it is. But do you? (laughs) Have you, as you've opened your heart to listen to the Spirit speaking this morning, have you been able to identify that area in your life? Delusion is very powerful, you understand. It could be that the, the very place where you think you have the least need is the actual place that Jesus is wanting to pull back that curtain and show you how much you really need him. It could be in an area that you think is strong. It could be in an area that you think, well, there's just no, no, I don't see any problem here. It could be an area that you're very aware of, that you've been struggling with. It could be something in your life that you know has been out of order. And you realize this morning for the first time that Jesus isn't asking you to break up or asking you to change that or asking you to do this because He wants to ruin your life. It's because He wants you to live. So have you been able to identify this morning that area of your life? And are you willing to let God speak into your life? And you're willing to follow what he says to you. Knowing how much he loves you. Are you willing to walk up to that closed door? The door he's knocking on. Everyone reach forward and knock on the pew in front of you. Those of you who are close enough to a pew to do it. One, two, three, knock. Yeah. Walk up to that closed door knowing that Jesus, who is standing on the other side of that door knocking, that He says, if you will just open that door, I will come in. I will eat with you. I will reveal my heart to you. I will show you my love. You will, you will be blown away with what I want to do in an area that maybe you've been so bound up and so afraid, so hidden and so ashamed in an area that you've tried and tried and tried and tried to deal with in the past, Jesus is saying, would you just open the door and let me in? In a relationship you've tried to get out of, in a place you've tried to ignore, Jesus is saying, would you just open the door for me and let me in? I want to ask you this morning that if you have been able to identify an area in your life that you know you need to walk up to the door and open it, I want to ask you to stand up. If you've been able to identify an area of your life that you believe you've been excluding Jesus from, we're not going to ask you what it is. No one here is going to ask you what it is. 
I would encourage you to tell someone that you trust what it is later. But in this context, you're safe. For all we know, it could be how you treat your dog. Don't, don't think everyone's going to know what it is. But if there's an area of your life, how you treat your dog is significant, by the way. I, I didn't mean that the way it sounded. I was just trying to say no one knows what it is. If you can identify an area of your life that you would like Jesus, you'd like to open the door and let Jesus in. You don't even know what that means. You don't even know what that's going to do. But you want to take the step of faith today to open that door and say, Jesus, come on in. Would you stand up? Stand up. This is powerful, people. If we open up the doors and let Jesus into our lives, there is no telling what will happen. And folks, it's all good. Anyone else? Stand up. Anyone else that can say, I want to let Jesus into that door of my life, into that room of my life, into that area, that relationship, that priority? You stand up. This is beautiful. Jesus sees you standing here today as an act of faith, a way of saying yes to him. A way of saying yes to his love. Yes, his rebuke and his discipline, but that's the expression of his love. And you're standing here today to say, yes, Jesus, come on in. And he has promised that he will do just that. I'd like to ask all of you to stand. We're going to close in prayer together. And if you're willing, I'm going to lead you in a little bit of a prayer. Uh, You can just pray this in your heart as I pray. It will lead you through a bit of a thanks and a confession, repentance and a surrender. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for loving us enough to speak into our very lives. For tailor-making your message for me, for us. For knowing our deeds and knowing our hearts and knowing exactly what's going on and loving us more than we could imagine. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. We thank you. And Jesus, we confess to you that there have been areas in our lives where we have left you on the outside. And today, we just say, Jesus, please forgive us. Please forgive us for the ways we've ignored you or excluded you or believed lies or just somehow thought you were irrelevant. You, the Lord of life, the Lord of creation was somehow not relevant. Jesus, we confess that as sin. We thank you for your forgiveness, which fully extends and covers everything in our lives. And Jesus, as an act of faith, we open that door. Whatever area that is, in our hearts, in our lives, in our relationships, we open the door, Jesus, as an act of repentance. Changing what we were doing, keeping the door closed, ignoring you, excluding you. We open the door of our lives and Jesus, we just invite you to come in to eat with us, to sit with us, to let your vision for our lives just pour into us. And Jesus, we surrender to you. We simply say, Jesus, 
now that you're seated here, now that you're in the home, that you have full permission to take us where you will, to change us where you need to. We repent today of our self-sufficiency so that, Jesus, we can find our true sufficiency in you. May your love and your grace be at the very center of our church, the very center of our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. We pray all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, may God fill you with his grace today. May the Spirit walk with you and in you this week. And may each moment of this week we would remember that we have opened the door, that Jesus is with us, and he is leading us into all the things he has for us, both as a church and individually. God bless you.